This week marks the beginning of a new sermon series, a study in the book of Acts, the first part of which will carry us through the fall, the second part of which will carry us through the spring, with a little break in between for an Advent series in December and a vision casting series in January. We've entitled this series Witnesses, which ultimately has a twofold meaning. God has always been pleased to display his, his glory to his people and through his people. That we are witnesses of God's goodness, glory, and grace as we see him at work in our lives, the lives of others, the world around us. And at the same time, not only are we witnesses of God's goodness, glory, and grace, but we're also witnesses to God's goodness, glory, and grace as we declare to the world what God is like with our lips and display to the world what God is like with our very lives. We're witnesses of and witnesses to God's goodness, glory, and grace. Another way to say it, we personally get to witness what Jesus is doing, and we get to bear witness to what Jesus is doing, much like many of the people will encounter through our study of this book of the Bible. And so with that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 1. That's where we'll be this week. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you happen to own is difficult to track with, please feel free to take that Bible as the church's gift to you. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll dive in and get to work. God, we desperately need you. Without you, we are hopeless. God, I pray this week as we work our way through the first chapter of this incredible book of the Bible that you would open our eyes to see Open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive the things that you have for us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you work and move? Would you help us to get a keen sense and awareness that we have been caught up in a story that's bigger than us, and yet a story uh, in which we are characters that you desire to use mightily for the sake of the advancement of the gospel. Holy Spirit, we need you. We're desperate for you. Move in our midst. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The book of Acts is an incredibly fascinating book of the Bible. It was written by Luke just a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. We, we know that Luke was a doctor. We, we know that he made trips with the apostle Paul and was loyal to Paul in the midst of Paul's imprisonment. We know that Luke was also an accomplished writer. The use of the Greek language in the book of Acts is incredibly refined. Aside from that, we, we don't know a great deal about Luke's life. He doesn't record a great deal about himself. He does record a great deal about Jesus. In fact, the, the books of Luke and Acts make up more content than all of Paul's letters combined, which is pretty incredible to think about. And they're all about Jesus. Luke is not in it for his own glory. His aim is to point people to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 1. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. This first book, quote unquote, is Luke's reference to his gospel account. Luke's gospel account includes a number of things. It tells of the birth of Jesus, the God of the universe stepping out of eternity into time, conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully divine, born of the Virgin Mary, fully human. Jesus stooped down and entered into the slums of human history. 
Luke's gospel account tells of the ministry and miracles of Jesus, the power of God on display in incredibly wondrous ways. Story after story after story of Jesus casting out demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, and not just his works, but also his words. Jesus claimed to be the son of God. He claimed to be the embodiment of truth. He claimed to be the only hope for salvation. Luke's gospel account also tells of the life of Jesus, a life without sin, a life of perfect submission to God the Father, the life that you and I could never live. Luke's gospel account tells of the crucifixion of Jesus, the shameful criminal's death that he died in the place of sinners, the death that you and I deserve to die. Our sins were put upon Jesus and he was punished in our place. Luke's gospel account tells of the resurrection of Jesus, his bursting forth from the grave in glorious triumph, declaring victory over those darkened dragons of Satan, sin, and death, and appearing to many who would become his witnesses, as we'll see throughout the course of our study of this book of the Bible. And finally, Luke's gospel account tells of the ascension of Jesus, his departure to the right hand of the Father where he sits as exalted high priest and triumphant king until he returns to make everything sad untrue for those who trust in him for salvation. Luke's gospel account is unequivocally all about Jesus Christ. And the book of Acts is really no different in that regard. Verse 1 is Luke's way of saying, as happens all the time in the TV world previously on... In other words, the book of Acts is the sequel to the book of Luke. Luke says, I've got some more things to tell you about Jesus. The book of Luke deals with all that Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts tells the story of what Jesus continued to do and teach after his ascension. Another way that we could say it, in the book of Luke, we, we read about what Jesus taught and did on earth. In the book of Acts, we read about what Jesus taught and did from heaven. The message of both Luke and Acts is one and the same. God saves lost sinners through his extravagant one-way love, love that we have access to by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Kent Hughes says this. He says, Acts forms the perfect counterpart in contrast to the Gospels. In the Gospels, the Son of Man offered his life. Acts tells us of the Son of God offering his power. In the Gospels, we see the original seeds of Christianity in Acts, we see the continual growth of the church. The gospel tells us of Christ crucified and risen. Acts speaks of Christ ascended and exalted. The gospels model the Christian life as lived by the perfect man. Acts models it as lived out by imperfect men. That last phrase of Kent Hughes' quote really uh, hit home for me this week. In fact, uh, within a matter of hours ago, I got the news that my grandfather... Uh, has been diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and essentially has 30 to 60 days left to live. And so I've been an absolute mess in recent hours. Just the, the idea of attempting to come and proclaim God's word in this moment as we open Acts chapter 1 together and to do so in power with strength feels impossible to me. As of even this moment right now, I'm sad, I'm weak, feeble, hurting, and so I understand exactly what Ken Hughes is saying when he says that the book of Acts models the Christian life lived out by imperfect men. I am one of those men. The book of Acts is encouraging to those of us who know ourselves to be imperfect. It's a declaration that Jesus has chosen to build his church with the gates of hell, hopeless to stop it. And he's chosen to do so through imperfect people like you and me, empowered by his spirit. The book of Acts 
really could be entitled The Acts of Jesus Christ Through the Apostles and the Church by the Power of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. The book of Acts really could be entitled The Acts of Jesus Christ Through the Apostles and the Church by the Power of the Holy Spirit. It tells the story of a bunch of ordinary people empowered by the Spirit, turning the world upside down for the glory of Christ. It's quite an amazing book of the Bible. Verses 3 through 5 give us this window into the brief time between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension. And in that regard, it overlaps the book of Luke. We're told in verse 3, He, Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So, There were essentially 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. And during that time, he presented himself alive to the disciples, proving his triumph over Satan, sin, and death. And he spent a great deal of time with them, teaching them about the kingdom of God. We read about one of those teaching moments in Luke chapter 24, the uh, famous road to Emmaus, the two disciples walking with Jesus, encountering the risen Jesus, having their hearts awakened to the beauty of seeing Jesus in all of the scriptures. Verse 4 tells of another of these moments that the disciples had with the risen Jesus. We're told, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Can you, can you imagine that excitement? What, what is this being baptized with the Holy Spirit, Jesus? Are we going back to the Jordan River for round two? Are the, are the clouds going to part like they did at your baptism? Are we going to hear a voice from heaven saying, you are my beloved son or daughter? Jewish rabbis had said that a revival of God's spirit would coincide with the restoration of, of Israel's political power, which helps to make sense of where the conversation goes in verse 6, where we're told, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin points out that there are as many errors in this question in verse 6 as there are words. That the verb restore makes clear that they're still focused on a political earthly kingdom rather than a spiritual one that the noun Israel makes clear that they're expecting Jesus' salvation to belong primarily to one race and culture, and the phrase at this time makes clear that they're expecting something a little bit more instantaneous. Verse 7, we're told that he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That Jesus presents the disciples with a call to action that requires far more dependence and power. A band of Christ followers acting as his witnesses to the world. Which is what the book of Acts begins to tell the story of. We're, we're talking not simply about the expansion of a political earthly kingdom, but a spiritual one. We're, we're talking not about salvation to one lone race and culture, but to both Jew and Gentile. We're talking not about an instantaneous work of God, but the gradual expansion of the kingdom of God by his grace. This is not an easy task. Jerusalem was the very city where Jesus himself was crucified. Jesus and the disciples had been rejected in Judea. And then there were all the cultural barriers to deal with in Samaria. And the end of the earth? Not only is that geographically unmanageable, remember, Delta had not been invented yet, but it also means that Jesus' disciples are going to have to take Jesus to the Gentiles too. These are 
the very last words from Jesus' lips before ascending to heaven, and they lay out the very mission of the church. Jesus is essentially saying, empowered by the Spirit of God, you're going to point people to the crucified and risen Son of God, and starting with Jerusalem, I'm going to build my church to the ends of the earth. Here's something pretty amazing to think about. Chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Acts tell the story of the gospel actually spreading to Jerusalem, in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 tell the story of the gospel spreading in all Judea and Samaria. Chapters 13 through 28 tell the story of the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth as far as Rome. That in 28 brief chapters, Jesus is showing us that his plan will not fail, that he will build his church and the gates of hell can't do a thing about it. That should encourage us. We need to be part of a a mission that's not only possible, but certain. And it's a mission that begins right in front of our very eyes, in our own personal, quote-unquote, Jerusalem, where we work, where we live, where we play. Tony Morita, in his commentary, says, the only difference in a believer sitting in his or her American home and a foreign missionary on the field is location, not identity. Every Christian, he says, is a missionary. And God himself, by his spirit, empowers that very mission. As we've talked about as a church in previous sermon series, the spirit of God is mightier than Bible Belt moralism. The spirit of God is mightier than the spirit at work in the suburbs that seeks to smother the Christian spirit. That God wants to use us to spread the good news of Jesus in our own backyard. And he promises to empower us with his spirit for the task. But it's not just locally, though we will talk a great deal about the local mission of the church in this series being that we spend most of our time in the context in which we live, work, and play. But the mission extends regionally, nationally, and globally, that there's a reason we support church planting initiatives in Georgia, Florida, Washington, D.C., Brazil, and even Italy. From our own backyard to the nations and everywhere in between, people everywhere desperately need the good news of Jesus Christ. Tony Morita, to quote him again, says, The ordinary people of God, equipped with the Word of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, dedicated to the Son of God, can accomplish the mission of God. That if we will declare ourselves to be ordinary apart from God's power and work, if we will equip ourselves with God's Word as stewards and students of the Word, if we will commit ourselves to declaring our deep dependence on the empowering work of the Spirit of God, And if we will dedicate ourselves to the superior son of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ as the core of our message, he says, we can accomplish the mission of God. And I would go further than to say, uh, to say not just can, but will that the church who fixes her eyes on Jesus and walks in the power of the Holy Spirit will impact eternity. And that's the kind of church that, that we want to be a spirit empowered, Bible believing, Christ exalting, God entranced church. Continuing on. In verse 11, we're told, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. We're talking about angels here. In verse 11, And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. That These verses speak of, of Jesus' ascension as well as his future return to make everything sad untrue. The church, 
which is you and me, we live between these two moments in human history, between the departure of Jesus and his return to consummate God's saving plan. And during this time, we're not called to just gaze into heaven. We've been given a mission. We've been given the promised Holy Spirit to empower this mission. Jesus now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high as our advocate in this mission. And the mission, going back to verse 8, is to be his witnesses. To, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's where we get our mission statement as a church. It's very simple. Our mission statement is pointing our communities to Jesus. It's all about Jesus, sharing the gospel with our lips and our lives, telling people the gloriously good news of a gloriously great Savior, living before those same people and relating to them in a gospel manner. Kent Hughes says, To be a witness, we must have logos, which is the word of Christ, we must have ethos, which is the inner reality of what we proclaim, and we must have pathos, which is passion. Hughes says, the apostles were passionate for Christ. Observe Peter at Pentecost. We'll get there uh, a couple weeks from now. Stephen at his stoning. Paul before Felix. They fervently promoted their faith. They were a band of zealous believers who turned their world upside down. I made mention of this in a, a previous sermon series a couple years ago. I wrote a seminary paper on George Whitfield, one of the most influential individuals in church history, the open-air preacher who helped to advance the gospel on both sides of the Atlantic, one of the men through whom God chose to bring about the Great Awakening Revival Movement. At one point in his life and ministry, George Whitfield was preaching a revival in Edinburgh, Scotland, and, and people were getting out of their beds at 5 a.m. to hear him preach, which, by the way, no one has ever done for me. Early one morning, we're told that a man on his way to the church house to hear Whitfield preach ran into David Hume, the famous Scottish philosopher and skeptic. And, and knowing Hume to be the skeptic that he was, the man said, I, I thought you didn't believe the gospel. And Hume's response was, I don't, but he does, pointing to George Whitfield, that George Whitfield got caught up in the beauty and wonder of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It started in his heart and moved outward into his life and ministry, and it had an impact on the watching world, the witnessing world, to use the language of this sermon series title. You want to know some really, really good news? You don't have to be George Whitfield to leave a gospel legacy. You don't. You, you just have to commit yourself to seeing and savoring the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and positioning yourself in your seeing and savoring as a friend of sinners. Let me say that again. You, you just have to commit yourself to seeing and savoring the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to positioning yourself in your seeing and savoring as a friend of sinners. And as we do, the fulfillment of a vision begins to happen. Which brings me to our church's vision statement. We've, we've simplified it in recent years to help bring clarity to what we hope for. Our vision is simply to see our communities informed and transformed by the power of the gospel for the glory of God. To be informed is to grow in our understanding of the fullness and beauty of the gospel. To be transformed is to believe the gospel such that it actually changes who we are and how we live. The informing and, and transforming most certainly begins with us as we preach the gospel to our own hearts, and then it moves out into our households, into our relationships, into our community groups, and our congregation at large, into our neighborhoods, and our workplaces. And, and as the gospel continues to work in us, it really does begin to radically transform the contours and fabric of our lives individually, communally, and culturally. That's what we're after as a church. 
Continuing on, verse 12 says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. Now all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Here, we get a simple reminder of that which is so easy for us to forget, which is that prayer is a monumental pillar of the Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered church. I love that devoted prayer is the precursor to all that we see unfold in the book of Acts. It's so easy for many of us, myself included, to see prayer as a waste of time, particularly when the task list before us is, is quite lengthy, that jumping right to the task gives us some semblance of feeling like we're in control, whereas prayer is an acknowledgement that we're really ultimately not in control and that God is. To, to go back to last week's self-reliance, it truly is a mirage. We're, we're all desperately in need of and dependent upon the Lord. There, there's no more important task than the spreading of the gospel, and that task for the early church was bathed in prayer before it was ever given a ground game. Think about that. I, I love the fact that Jesus' promise doesn't keep his people from hitting their knees in prayer, as if God's promises render prayer to be a waste of time. You know, it's easy to think, he's going to do it anyway. He said he would. Why pray for him to do it? And the answer is, because it's actually his promises which give us hope and confidence to pray. Knowing with certainty that God will fulfill his promises should actually embolden our prayers all the more. And, and notice that it's not just Prayer, that's a precursor to the spreading of the gospel, but also unity. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. And, and that's no small, insignificant detail. Remember who we're talking about here. Strong-willed men who argued over who would get the best seat in Jesus' kingdom. Family members who thought Jesus was a little off of his rocker at one point. Virtuous and scandalous women alike. It, it's amazing who God can bring together under the banner of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The unity in the midst of great diversity with Jesus as the glue holding it all together, that unity in and of itself is a witness to the beauty and glory of the gospel, that Jesus really is stronger than gorilla glue. The, the fact that many of us might not have a relationship with each other apart from Jesus, that makes Jesus look really good. It's, it's not the self-reliant, prayer-abandoning church that experiences the power of the Spirit. It's not the divisive, contentious church that experiences the power of the Spirit. The Lord Jesus is pleased to pour out His Spirit upon those who put knees to the gospel, praying for God to move, and He's pleased to pour out His Spirit upon those who seek to live in unity with Jesus as the great unifier, holding it all together. Moving on, verse 15 says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Now let me just, let me just stop here for a second and give you the Facebook profile on Peter. We, we know that Peter was married, according to Mark chapter 1. In fact, we, we know that his wife accompanied him on some of his missionary journeys, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. We know that Peter had a background in the fishing industry. He actually ran a fishing business with his brother Andrew. His brother Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, Jesus' second cousin. Peter was introduced to Jesus by his brother. Soon after, we're told that Peter was called by Jesus to follow him. He was one of the first disciples that Jesus chose. 
as a disciple. We know that uh, Peter spent three years with Jesus Christ. And not only that, he was one of the three in Jesus's inner circle. If, if the disciples were in a community group with Jesus, Peter, James, and John were in a gospel alliance, you might say. And so Peter, James, and John alone saw Jesus raise Jairus's daughter from the dead, Mark chapter 5. Peter, James, and John alone saw the transfiguration of Jesus, Mark chapter 9. Peter, James, and John alone got an inside look at Jesus's anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, Mark chapter 14. And along with all those inner circle moments, Peter saw all the following things with his own eyes. He saw Jesus cast out demons. He saw Jesus heal the sick. He saw Jesus befriend sinners and tax collectors and hang out with them in intimate environments. He saw Jesus calm a storm by simply saying, peace, be still. He saw Jesus raise people from the dead. He saw Jesus turn a little boy's lunchbox into a feast for 5,000 men plus their families. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus give sight to a blind man on two different occasions. He saw Jesus curse a fig tree, which proceeded to wither away at its roots. He saw Jesus ride into Jerusalem, the crowd shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He saw the same crowds cry, crucify him only days later. He sat at the Passover table and get this, partook of the very first communion as the Lord's Supper was instituted. That's incredible. He had Jesus himself wash his very feet. He was there when Jesus was betrayed by Judas and arrested. He was there when Jesus was mocked. He was there when Jesus was crucified and he received a personal visit from the resurrected Jesus, the encounter where Jesus asked him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter was an eyewitness to all of that. He's portrayed in the gospels as most loyal, yet his betrayal is most tragic aside from Judas. But something changes in the wake of Jesus's resurrection. In his witness of the resurrected Jesus, Peter is transformed from a coward to a courageous witness to the resurrected Jesus. That the same man who denied Jesus three times, this Peter, according to Acts chapter 2, we'll get there a few weeks from now, proclaimed the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in a sermon that brought about the conversion of 3,000 souls in a single day. That the same man who denied Jesus three times, this Peter, under Roman persecution during the reign of the emperor Nero, was crucified upside down, believing himself to be unworthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. And we now have two books included in the canon of Scripture that bear his name. That Peter had a collision with Jesus and he was forever changed. Jesus really does change people and he invites them to play a role in a story that will impact eternity. Have you met him? Have you encountered Jesus Christ? Coming back to verse 15, it says, In those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 18, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language a keldamah, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. 
So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice because you needed three names back then, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. That chapter one closes with Peter standing up among the brothers, bringing to attention the issue of Judas, the same Judas he saw betray Jesus with his very own eyes that Jesus had originally appointed 12 apostles corresponding to the 12 sons of Jacob in the Old Testament. And Peter here sees the need to establish 12 men of apostolic authority. And he sees the need to do so based on Old Testament scripture that like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24, Peter had spent time with the resurrected Jesus. He'd, he'd been taught how to interpret the Old Testament in light of Jesus. And so Peter quotes two of the Psalms, connecting them to their ultimate fulfillment in both Jesus and Judas, and arguing for Judas's replacement out of the second of those two Psalms. To be an apostle meant that you were an eyewitness of the risen Jesus, that Christianity is founded on the historical event of the resurrection. And so it makes sense that the church would be established by the message of credible witnesses, witnesses of that historical event. And so we're told that two men are nominated, not based on personality or likability, unlike many church leaders today, but based on the fact that they were witnesses of the resurrected Jesus. One of the two, we're told, is chosen by the casting of lots. Keep in mind that this is right before the Holy Spirit comes to indwell God's people. We don't need to cast lots because we have the indwelling Spirit to guide us. It's it's really interesting to me how chapter 1 ends. It's a little unexciting on the surface, is it not? After all, we don't hear another word about Matthias as we march onward through the book of Acts. This is it. Chapter 1 is all you hear of him. But... It seems to me, and I would argue strongly here, that there's something deeper going on than just a leadership replacement in this moment. Remember, Jesus declared to Peter that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Jesus had chosen his 12, and now the circle of 12 has been broken. Satan filling the heart of Judas was about something far bigger than Judas. It was Satan aiming to destroy Jesus' work, ultimately. It was Satan aiming to prove Jesus' words about the victorious church to be a lie. Peter's aim is, I believe in part, to, to show that this new community will be built, that Satan's attempt to derail the church is an exercise in futility. In, in fact, that seemingly insignificant detail communicating there to be 120 persons, according to verse 15, in Jewish law, get this, a minimum of 120 people was required to establish a community with its own council. That subtle little detail in verse 15 is actually a strong declaration that Satan's on the losing side, that Jesus has already established a new community purchased by his blood. We call it the church. Jesus will build it, and the gates of hell are helpless against it. Amen? That for the next several months, you and I get a front row seat to one of the greatest stories ever told as the gospel expands throughout the known world in a matter of just a few decades. 
I, I love the way the Gospel Transformation Bible says it. It says, in Acts, the gospel expands not through human strength, but through weakness, opposition, and persecution. Demonic forces, worldly powers and authorities, governmental opposition, language and cultural barriers, intense suffering and bloody persecution, unjust imprisonment, unbelief, internal disunity, and even shipwrecks and snakes all threaten to slow down the gospel's advance. But opposition and suffering do not thwart the spread of Jesus' grace. Rather, they fuel it. That the gospel spreads despite barriers of geography, ethnicity, culture, gender, and wealth. Many of these barriers appear so inviolable that when the gospel is preached to a new segment of society, riots ensue. But Luke makes clear that no one is beyond the scope of God's saving power, nor is anyone exempt from the need of God's redeeming grace, that all people receive the grace of God through one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus' gospel goes out to all places and all types of people because Jesus is Lord of all. If you Skip ahead to the, the end of the book of Acts. It, it ends rather abruptly with Paul preaching the gospel in Rome. There's, there's actually a reason for that. That the book of Acts is the story of Jesus building his church by his grace. And it's a story that continues today. It continues until Jesus returns. It's why our church planting network is called the Acts 29 network. Some of you guys are like, aha, the light bulb has gone off. That you, you and I are, are part of the quote-unquote next chapter in the history of the church. As I said in the series on the church back in January, you are a metaphorical brush that God is using to add gospel color to the canvas of human history. That by God's grace, we get the honor and privilege of participating in the greatest story ever told. The story of Jesus building his church by his grace. This this series presents us with a window into the chapters that took place long before us, make no mistake about that, but chapters nonetheless that make up the very same story that you and I are part of. Stick around. This series is going to be a lot of fun.